I am so excited to be here with you, and um, energized by the fact that I see a number of faces I already know, uh, not just from my own parish, but from my experiences around the diocese. Um, just to give you a little hint of uh, where that might have been so that you get a sense of my experience in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. So I'm 68 years old. I've been a priest. I'm in my 41st year of being a priest. So uh, my experience has been really all over the place in the Archdiocese. So I was a deacon in St. Clair's Parish in Ellisville, uh, and then after ordination, uh, the Archbishop asked me to teach full-time at St. Dominic's in O'Fallon. And my first pastoral assignment as a priest was to All Saints in St. Peter's. So I'm back there again now the second time as a much older and hopefully wiser person. Uh, I stayed three years there and five years um, at St. Barnabas in O'Fallon. Uh, just so you know, in terms of the... Um, the current crisis in the church, it was in that first assignment at All Saints that I met the first priest who I knew to be a pedophile and reported him to the bishop. Um, and I think we all know the history of how that was or wasn't handled through the history of our church to this point. Uh, so after St. Barnabas, I asked the bishop if I could be a full-time parish priest because... I, that's why I was ordained. I had been a teacher, went through Harris Stowe Teachers College. I taught in the city public schools, so that was my history going into the priesthood until one day sitting at lunch with my African-American Southern Baptist female co-teacher who looked at me and said, I think you ought to be a minister. And I, of course, said no to her because I was Catholic and in a relationship and knew that our clergy could not be married, and so I tried to immediately dismiss that call to ministry. And as God usually does with probably most of you sitting here today, uh, plants the seed, or I call it a brain worm, that won't go away. And no matter how many times you say no, the obstacles fall away, and he calls us to say yes again. So from St. Barnabas, I became a full-time priest at... How, uh, Our Lady Queen of Peace in House Springs, Missouri, so in Jefferson County, and was there three years. I know, do you get a hint that I can't keep a job? <laughs> uh, from there, um, was asked to go as pastor to St. Mark's in North City on Page and Academy. You betcha. Uh, th so that was my first pastorate, and the people of St. Mark's taught me well how to be a pastor. They were just incredible mentors for me. Sadly, that parish closed uh, and merged, as many of our parishes have since then. Um, and I was, after I studied a little bit in California at St. Thomas Seminary, I was asked to be the pastor of Our Lady of Good Counsel in North County, and I was there for 12 years until, sadly, it was closed and merged into a, another church called Holy Name. And then from there, sent to All Saints. And I've been there now. I'm in my 14th year. So, so at least I'm able to keep jobs longer than I, than I used to be able to. 
I'm from a family of uh, my mom and dad uh, and six of us kids, and I have 47 nieces, great-nieces, great-great-nieces and nephews, uh, and am very close to my family. Uh, Part of my family lives in Europe, part of my family lives here in this metropolitan area. Uh, Our family has been touched by the hardest and most difficult of deaths and the most joyous high points a family can experience. Um, Trying to think of what else would help you understand my experience. Uh, My doctorate in preaching came only because I was dissatisfied with our treatment of little children in the church. Uh, I know that we have a lot of focus on kids once they reach the age of seven, but before that, almost every other church in existence except the Catholic Church does a lot for those little ones. They even have children's pastors, and we do not uh, for the most part. And so I became interested in trying to develop something so that we could acknowledge that formation doesn't happen just suddenly at the age of seven, but that the church could support families as the first formators of their children earlier than that. And then I discovered the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, which was there way before I was, and what a delight that was for me and is for me to be a part of. So at All Saints, we have all three of those atria, so from three to six, six to nine, nine to twelve, And we just sent somebody for formation to start infant to three years old. Because what do we believe? The human being has a relationship with God from the moment of conception. So when they're born, doesn't start their relationship with God. When they go to school, doesn't start their relationship with God. Their relationship with God starts from the moment of their conception. So we who come into their lives from the outside, we're not teaching them something. uh, We're not introducing them to God. They already know God. God is already their friend. We're helping them find opportunities to meet God along the way and then hopefully get out of the way so they can develop that relationship with him. So those are some of my experiences and my um, various paths through life. Um, as Sister said, I, um, when I turned 60, I did this massive uh, thing in my life of, of uh, discernment and, and attempting to see, okay, God, I've got 15 more years of active ministry. I don't just want to sort of slide into retirement, but I'd like it to be directed as much as I can by the Holy Spirit. And so I spent a great amount of time uh, trying to figure out what is it, God, that you want me to do And the basic message that came from God was, and this is what I would say about my life, I have everything I ever needed and more besides. So my life is not about me because I already have everything I need. So this is what God was saying to me, plant seeds for the future so that it can bear fruit for those who go after you. Whatever gifts you have, use those to plant seeds for the future. And it wasn't more, any more than a month later that the Archbishop asked me to teach preaching at the seminary. It wasn't in my plan. It wasn't what I thought I would do with those 15 years. I thought, oh, God, you are really something. <laughs> <laughs> because these men that I get to be with will be preaching 
to the Catholic community for the next 50, 60, 70 years, some of them. So uh, I really pray that I am planting some great seeds for the future. I also believe that, that lay ministry, as you are in development and doing right now, is not a replacement because we don't have enough priests, but it's an, an acknowledgement of the gifts of God that are present in the whole community and that we have sometimes not given you enough help, enough encouragement, enough development to be able to take your rightful place through your baptism. So I'm, that's why I'm really glad to be here with you to encourage you in the choices you are making to serve the church, your community, your families in a way that comes from your baptism. So what I've been asked to do today is to share with you some insights about leadership uh, as you are about to embark onto that particular role. The scripture tells us that every single person of God is given a particular gift to serve the common good. So I just ask us to keep that in mind today, that when we talk about leadership, the whole focus of leadership is about how does it serve the common good, not how do I look important in front of other people? Not how do I get what I want? Not, not how do I get to manipulate how I think everybody else's life should go? But how do I use whatever gifts and talents God has given to me to lead the community into being the fullest flowering of the gifts of the Holy Spirit so that we can be that light to the world? So whatever I say here today is meant to do that. So I would ask you to please have the discernment and the wisdom. If anything I say doesn't serve that for you, just throw it away. Uh, and let the Spirit guide you into whatever truth will help set you free. My context today, uh, as a person standing before you, uh, attempting to do some reflections about leadership, I would be the silliest man on the face of the earth if I didn't use as a model for that Jesus Christ. So I just want you, want you to know that ahead of time, that when I attempted to place before you something about leadership, my main focus was on what kind of leader was Jesus. So, uh, and, and in that context, I would ask you to shy away from one thing that we do with Scripture, which is we have our behavior and our beliefs, and we try to find a verse from the Bible or the life of Jesus that supports what we believe to be true. So shy away from that and look at the major trends, characteristics, virtues, choices, actions that Jesus had through the major portion of his life. So don't just pick out one incident and say, see, I can get mad and throw around tables because that's just what Jesus did. But to look at the major trends of him as a leader, and to say, okay, was he angry? Yes. As a leader, will I be angry? Yes. But what does he usually do with that? And it's not usually throw tables over. So, with that context, I want to start, and just as a, to let you know, at the end of the day, there will be a list of the various topics I'm talking about, not any of the details but the various topics that I'm talking about will be given to you. So they're over here on the table. 
but if you want to take the notes about the details, that's up to you. Okay? All right. So I want to start with a scripture. Uh, it would be Mark 10, 42. And it's a scripture that most of us are familiar with. It's a scripture that says, you all know how the leaders of the Gentiles who are powerful lord it over them. Jesus says specifically, it cannot be that way with you. So when Jesus describes leadership and those who take leadership positions, he clearly says that lording it over people, whatever shape that takes, is not acceptable in the Christian community. Now, let me say clearly, I and probably every single one of you have experienced a leader in the Catholic Church that has tried to lord it over you. I'm just saying we are not perfect, nor will you as leaders be perfect. But we need to keep holding in front of us what Jesus says, not how we can explain away our behavior or someone else's. And we stand in communion with others who have failed us because we have failed others, and just as they are sinners, so are we. But it ought to be true that we can learn from what somebody else does and not repeat it on someone else just because they did it to us. And that takes a conscious choice because you all know the pattern in us human beings. Those who are abused tend to repeat the abuse. So if we have been abused by power, it should not surprise us at all that one of the first urgings of our mind and heart might be trying to lord it over somebody else. We learned it somewhere. So there are patterns in our behavior, patterns in what we've learned, patterns in the examples that have been set before us that we have to unlearn. So we have to consciously say, I may see that in you, you may have done that to me, and I may have been hurt by that. And I'm consciously choosing not to repeat that particular pattern of behavior. So what would some of those things look like? So these are the kind of things I would list as things that just cannot be that way with us. There is a, a, a phrase called self-righteousness. Do you know what that means? All right. It means, basically, that I know much better than you do how life should go, and that includes how your life should go. And I also know that you have nothing to offer me that is of any benefit because I already know. It cannot be that way with us. And if you need any kind of motivation. This is the one group of people that Jesus looks at and he says, you know what? I can't help you. We think, oh my gosh, Jesus is so powerful. What do you mean he can't help them? Well, he can't help them because they don't think they need help. Or when we're self-righteous, 
We don't think we need help. I know many of you must be married. And I would imagine that in your relationships with your spouses, there have been times when your spouse looks at you and says, I think I have to come back and talk to you later because you are not willing to listen right now. You're too full of yourself. Ring true? Yeah. Yeah. And we've experienced that about ourselves as well as we try to get somebody else to listen to us or maybe be open to something new or different or even notice their own behavior and how it's affecting us. We can become so sure that we're right that nobody can help us, even Jesus. So it's important to notice what's self-righteous about us as leaders so that we can consciously choose to change that behavior. Jesus calls self-righteous people whitened sepulchers, look great on the outside, and they're full of rotting bones on the inside. Yeah, quite an image, huh? And if any of us have ever discovered the self-righteousness in ourselves, we know that that's exactly true. We're trapped. We're trapped in our own fullness of ego. We don't know how to get out of it. We're afraid to admit it. Because what does that say to us as a, lead, as a leader? And so we just keep perpetuating, I'm way stronger, way smarter, way more in control than you will ever be. So listen to me. It cannot be that way with us. Another word that I would use about something that cannot be that way with us is arrogance. Arrogance means that um, we've decided that we're better than anybody else. And we take that power position and then use that power position to make sure that everybody knows it and everybody takes their proper place below us. I believe it has its most ugly face in racism where we decide that a person, because of the color of their skin, the look of their eyes, the language that they speak, the country that they come from, that we're better than you are just because of that. And so we have the right to tell you who you are, where you belong, and what we'll allow you to do. And whether we like to admit it or not, there are vestiges of that in every institution in our lives, including families, churches, governments. It's an ugly piece of our history and an ugly piece of our present. And Thank God that our Archbishop has asked us to spend this year as each parish to do a special focus on racism to make sure that we are attending to that sinful presence in our community. If your parish has not started those kind of conversations, it might be a good time to do that. Two other things that I would say cannot be that way among us. 
is that we seek our own importance more than anyone else's. Call it self-importance. It doesn't mean that we can't take care of basic human needs. But it does mean that others' basic human needs are as important as ours. And the last one would be the use of power. So all of us live in power structures. It's just the way it is. It's just what that power looks like. Are there other voices included in decision making? And remember, the focus is always starting with us. Not it's, You know how it's easier to see the splinter in somebody else's eye than it is to see the beam in our own, right? Yeah. So how do we use power uh, to be an enforcer of our own self-importance because we believe we're the center of the universe? It just cannot be that way with us. So there are many other vices that I could talk about that cannot be that way with us. Let me tell you the number one response I have every time I say this out loud to anybody. Primarily, people say to me, we can't live that way anymore. It might have worked in the time of Jesus, but it won't work now. Because people just don't act in that way. It's just not that way anymore. We would be eaten up by society if we acted that way. We have to push up against them, right? Uh, With our power and manipulation. So I would just, every place we go, I love in a Catholic institution, every place we go... There's a crucifix. So if you turn your head back and look at... Oh, here it is, right here. Okay. So, so, oh my gosh. If we live a Christian life, it might cost us everything. Oh, really? Hmm. I wonder if we ever have a hint that that might be true. See, I think we play. We play at this Christianity, and we only go a certain level, and we say, well, if I live this way, it's going to cost me everything. Well, it should That's what our leader did. That's who we say we follow. That's whose name we take. That's whose life we try to emulate. But I know every time I experience in my life another mini-dying, another vulnerability, another place where, another time in my life where I take the lower place and take the consequences of that, it reminds me of him and scares me. Because that is exactly what's true. It should cost us, in the end, everything. The scripture tells us the only thing we can take to heaven with us is what? Love. That's it. And death does not rob us of that. I love that old Billy Graham quote. He said, I've been to many funerals and many barrels, and I've never seen a hearse followed by a U-Haul. It's a good reminder. All right, so those are sort of what I would call the, I don't want to say incidental because they're all important, but I want to get to the bigger thing that Jesus says it cannot be that way with us. 
And that is, what does he say over and over again? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Oh, no. No, don't be afraid. So I want to try to do something with that this morning because I would suspect, for those of you who are about to embark on a particular leadership position in the Catholic Church, if you're not afraid, there is really something wrong with you. There really is. For any of us to stand up in front of other people and say, in, the, in this day and age, I am willing to stand and lead you, that's a scary position to take. So, here's how I would uh, put a context around fear not. So, I would say, in my opinion of how I saw Jesus live and act, I would think he would say, don't let fear control the choices that you make. Because I've never met a human being who is fearless. There's an, uh, a French-American saint named Theodore Guerin who was uh, from France, came to Indiana, started St. Mary the Woods, incredible educator, took care of orphanages and, and the poor. And this is a quote from her. When one has nothing more to lose, the heart is inaccessible to fear. When the heart has nothing more to lose, the heart is inaccessible to fear. So that gives us a great insight into fear. Fear is always based on something that's going to happen that's not good. Right? Yeah. So just think for yourself now, as you... As you look into the future and you think about standing in front of other people or just publicly saying or having the pastor publicly say, this person just finished the uh, lay formation program and is here to serve us and is going to be a leader in this particular area at, at least for the next three years. And here's what it is. So what are you afraid of? And look at that fear and ask yourself, What's it going to cost you? What, it, what is the fear telling you you're going to lose? How is it going to hurt you? Where are you making yourself vulnerable? All those sorts of things. What's the fear based on? All right, so, so this is one of my specialties because every year I get a new group of students who are pre learning to preach as Catholic priests, and of course they're scared to death. The first homily, when they stand up to give a homily, is always, I say it's always good if you don't die of a heart attack. That's your number one thing. So you, you got up there and you said some words and you came down and didn't die. That takes care of your number one fear, right? All right. doesn't take care of it, but at least you didn't die. All right. So what, that's, what I'm trying to say is that the reason fear works is because there's always a piece of the fear that's true. So you can't make a fear go away, a true fear go away, because it's always based on something that's true. Think of your fear. 
So if I got up to give a homily, or this morning as I'm coming here to be with you, I'm afraid, there's a part of me that's afraid. And if I get really, really, really primed down to the deeper level, it's like, oh, I'm going to die over this, right? And is there a possibility that this morning in front of you I could have a heart attack and die? Yes, that's why I can't put it away. I can't say 100% it's not going to happen. But what we sometimes do not do is put it where it belongs. So I'm going I'm to give you a visual. So if you have a piece of paper in front of you, just do a spectrum, a line across your paper. And you put at one end of the line 100% and at the other end of the line 0%. I'll give you a really crazy example. So when our folks, when, when we all go to Belize on mission trip, we go to the Mayan villages in southern Belize, and we go in these vans and we go through these, on these terrible roads, and we go into these very uh, 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 third world situations, and uh, people are often worried because they hear these stories about tarantulas crawling into the building and da 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 So... Uh, so everybody's sort of afraid. Fire ants crawling up your legs, all those sorts of things. So uh, I always try to get people to put that fear where it belongs, just what I'm trying to do with you this morning. I say, okay, what's the possibility of a tarantula crawling into your bathroom? Well, it's only happened once in the 13 years we've been going there, and there's the how many other people ago. So your chance is like 5%, 4%, 3%. So put it there. Is there a chance? Yeah. But it's a small chance. And what do we say? Oh, yeah, but it's a tarantula. Right? I'm going to give you two instances that you already do this unconsciously. How many of you drove here today or rode in a car? All right. You know that most accidents happen in cars? Okay. But somehow you've dealt with that fear. Could you have died in your car on the way here? Yeah. Yeah. But you somehow put it down here near the 5%, unless you've had an accident lately. And then it kind of goes up again because you have that lived memory that's so current. But you put it where it belongs, right? And so you say to yourself, is it possible that I could die in a car today coming up to this meeting? Yeah. But is it worth being here? Is it? Yeah. So you get into a car and you say to that fear what? I'm going to put you where it belongs. And the more often you do that, what happens? You don't even consciously think about it anymore until somebody hits you and then you go, oh, there's a chance I could die. (laughs) And then you have to put the fear back where it belongs again. Same way, how many of you, this is a very personal question, how many took a shower or a bath in the last 24 hours? (laughs) Thank you for doing that. (laughs) Most home accidents happen where? In the bathroom, while somebody's taking a bath or a shower. So is it possible that in the last 24 hours, you could have fallen and I've fallen and I can't get up? Yeah, yeah. But how often have you taken a shower or bath that hasn't happened? Or if it has happened, you put pull bars and uh, grip strips on the bottom of the shower stall or whatever else you do, and you say, is there a chance I could fall? Yes, but... 
it is worth being clean and smelling good, right? And being healthy. Yes? Yeah, so we take a shower, not consciously anymore thinking, whew, I can go in here because the chances of falling are very small. No, we don't do that because we put it where it belongs. So I'm, not, I'm saying to you, I know that all of us have fears. Please put them where they belong. And it starts by consciously naming the fear. So public ministry, what's one of the biggest fears? Public speaking, right? But it's not public speaking. It's what? I'll say something stupid, and people will think I'm stupid. And when people think I'm stupid, they won't listen to me. And when they don't listen to me, then I'll be isolated. And when I'm isolated, I'm all alone. And when I'm all alone, I just hate how lonely that feels. I don't ever want to be like that because at one point in my life, I felt like that. So really, to deal with fear, you have to get below the I'm afraid of public speaking. And you have to go where you belong, which is the deepest part of the fear. It's the hardest thing to admit but put it where it belongs. So if the fear of public speaking is based in, I'm going to look stupid and people are going to reject me and I'm going to be isolated and all alone, is there a chance that that could ever happen? Yes. But where does it belong on that spectrum of 100 to, to 0? It can't go to 0 because it's a possibility. But it can go way, 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 way down on the spectrum because don't you have people who will love you no matter what? And putting that fear where it belongs is going to help you get in touch with reality. So I, I'm afraid of public speaking because somebody's going to think I'm stupid. Somebody's not going to like what I say. Somebody's going to disagree with me. Guess what? Welcome to the world. That's who we are. And if we look in the mirror, that's who I am. I don't agree with people who stand in front of me. There may be some of you right now who are saying, he's full of hoo-ha. Just the way it is. That is reality. But that we will become completely isolated because of that. For almost all of us, it's simply not true. To me, that's why homebound ministry is so important because a person stuck in their bed at home can't get to the community. We're the one person who goes to them and says what? You are not alone. Your life has power in the community. And this is what you do with us. And this is why I'm here with you. That's why we have the tabernacle. To remind us that when and if we cannot get to the Eucharist. The Eucharist will come to us because we are part of a community. We are not alone. One more thing about fear, and I'm hoping that this is a gift. Uh, how many of you sometimes lay awake at night and you can't go to sleep because of all the things that are swimming around in your head? Ah, I'll give you my guess. My guess is that you're a victim of what's called free-floating anxieties. Free-floating fears. 
And you know why they're free-floating? Because we haven't named them and put them where they belong. We belittle our fears. We say, oh, you're stupid to be afraid of that. Or you should be over that by now. And so we don't name them and put them where they belong. And here's the hideous part of anxiety. If we don't name fears and put them where they belong, guess what? When they're floating freely in us, guess what? They collect all the other free-floating anxieties. And they become this big blob that when you're trying to go to sleep at night, you wonder, where is all this coming from? I didn't consciously think about it all day long, and now they're all there. It's the accumulation of all the unnamed fears that we have. So you might want to have a piece of paper and a writing utensil next to your bed and the next time you can't go to sleep, just start writing down, what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? And you'll probably fall asleep in the midst of that litany because you're naming them and not allowing them to freely float. So if you'd like a scripture to go with that fear stuff, Isaiah 41.10 is a great, great one. It's that one that says, Fear not, for I am with you always, until the end of the ages. Isaiah 41.10. Alright, so, so far... <laughs> I've told you what I don't think leaders should have in them and what might keep us paralyzed about being leaders. I have about five minutes to start on some of the things that I think should be present in leaders and we'll continue on in the next one in the next session. All right, so the first... Um, the first... Uh, characteristic of a good leader is one who is willing to accompany. One of the things that I believe we're really good at nowadays, and I mean good in quotes because I don't think it's a great thing to do, all by itself. I think we're really good at helping people identify what, where they're sinning. Identifying sin. You're a sinner because you do this. You're a sinner because you do that. You're a sinner because you do this. I think that's an important step in all of our lives. I think this is what's missing that's the mark of a good leader. Anytime we help somebody acknowledge sin in their life, we should be committed to them for the rest of their lives to help them move in a path of holiness. I think a lot of church leaders drop bombs in people's lives. Oh, you're this? Boom. Oh, you're this? Boom. Oh, you're this? Go away. 
And that first step of helping people acknowledge their own sin is sometimes the most isolating experience as opposed to the most community-building experience. Now think about the logic of this. Is there, um, how should I say, I'll quote the scripture. Let you who is without sin cast the first stone. Anybody have any rocks? And I know Mary's not here, so. Right? So when we acknowledge sin in another person, what should be our first reaction? Oh my gosh, they're just like I am. Oh, they're one of me. Oh, they're part of this great community of sinners. Oh my gosh, as a leader, one of the first things I should want sinners to know is that you have a home here because guess what? We're all just like you are. To me, I call that accompaniment. A willingness to walk with people. Now, I want you to just pause for a moment since we're using, this is not Don Wester, this is Jesus, I, I'm not Jesus, I'm using Jesus as an example of how to be a leader. So you could quickly name five or ten incidences from the life of Jesus where he did exactly that. The rest of the community was looking at somebody and saying, that person's a sinner, let's get rid of him or her or them. And what does Jesus do? He goes and stands with that person or that group of people and he says what? What does he say? Well, I'm with them. So pick your side. They're with me. So as a leader, what does that look like in our lives? How, as a nature of a church, how is a parish community how is a family, how in relationships do we begin that characteristic that we, when we see the sinfulness in another person, our first reaction is not isolation and judgment, but community with that person. Guess what the consequence of that is? The self-righteous will be angry. And our churches will be filled with the needy. Wouldn't that be a crime? So it starts with what? Personal conversion, right? We can always see the beam in somebody, the, 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 uh, the splinter in somebody's eye, not the beam in our own. So it really has to begin by looking in the mirror. So who are those groups of people who are unforgivable in my eyes? It's a revelation of individual and corporate prejudice. Let me share with you one of the prejudices I discovered in myself unbeknownst to me because I thought I was such a great guy. So our parish has a, what we call a prison outreach. So on a very regular basis, we visit those who are incarcerated 
and uh, twice a year do week-long, uh, weekend retreats in prisons. So next weekend, that's where I'll be, is in Bontier Prison, helping our team with a retreat. First time I did this, I went in, and for those of you who have been in a prison, you know that it's a little scary experience, you know, clanging doors, and they take everything from you, and you go through metal detectors and all that. It's a very, for me, a dehumanizing experience. The next thing I thought was that they would lead me to a place where there would be a bunch of guards and a group of residents from the prison where we would have this retreat. And they handed me a thing that was about this size, and, they, and I said, so what is this? And they said, well, it's a body alarm. I said, oh, a body alarm, what does that do? They said, well, if there's any trouble, just push the button. I said, well, what does the button do? And they said, well, it makes lots of noise. Oh, okay. And I said, there, so there won't be guards around us where we're going to do this retreat? No, there won't. Mm, okay. So already I could feel this. Oh, oh, oh. Um, so I went into the retreat experience, uh, this, this building cell block uh, separate from others. And, um, and I was immediately hit with people who were in deep need. It was almost like, you know, the collar kind of magnet, magneted people to me. But what I learned as I sat at table and had discussions with the folks that were there, some guy says to me, um, you know, I felt a lot of frustration because uh, in my work for a master's degree, inside of me I'm going, why are you studying for a master's degree? Because the people who were on retreat were people who had a life sentence who would never get out of prison or death row. And my prejudice was, if that were me, I'd be hopeless. So I decided that everybody I would meet on that weekend would be hopeless. And when I began to experience men who were filled with hope about now that they had made this terrible decision in their life that would cost them so much that they were willing to do something to make meaning in their life. Oh, my mind and heart was blown. Those are the kind of people I want to spend my life around. I wasn't able to see that or experience that until the prejudice was lifted from my own mind and heart about who it is that lives in a prison and what their mindset and heart set is. So who is that in your life that you are totally convinced you have no oneness with, there's nothing in common, there's no way for you to bring hope, they're not worth your attention? And what will accompaniment look like with you as a leader? Because some of those people are going to be the first people on your doorstep. Let's take a break.